closed out our session by talking about internally what is the hidden resource inside of ourselves that the world needs now. For God has planted us in the earth with resource that the earth needs now. And what is the great thing uh, that you dream about but have not yet done? I believe that God said through the prophet Joel that in the last days, old men will dream dreams and young men will see visions. And we honor the Lord for everything that he will do and everything that he will accomplish. We now come to greatness, moving into greatness number two. And if you will, uh, find those notes on your table and we will uh, begin our time together. My model for leadership is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've already said, stated that Jesus took 12 men, poured his life into them over a three and a half period, year period of time. And those men went out and changed the world. You see, servant leaders must look beyond their current context. You got to look beyond men, our current problems, our current events, our current circumstances, our current governmental leaders, our current artistic leaders, our current business leaders, our current educational leaders. We have to look beyond even those that are leading in direct media. And uh, we have to look beyond even those that are leading sometime in families and in government. And we have to look beyond our current context because if you and I only look at our current context, we can be overwhelmed. But friends, great leaders have to look somewhere beyond, and that's called dreams and visions. Now, great leaders, listen, are fully engaged in their now while embracing their future. I have discovered that as a great leader, no matter where I am, there I am, and I bring all that is within me, and I am fully engaged. But even in my now, I must be fully engaged in my now. That is, I'm in my current context, but always embracing the world that is to come. I'm always embracing their tomorrow. And so you and I, we are unique among God's creation because we can stand in our today and we can embrace our tomorrow by a thing called vision. Vision is the opportunity God gives us to romance our future in our now. Vision is a pictured goal. Vision is a God-given image. And you and I, we can embrace our future in our now. Now, our anchor scripture for these sessions has been Matthew 25 or 20, 25, where it says, but Jesus called them to himself. And he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They lord over them that they are rulers. And those that are great exercise authority over them. The pattern of authority was authority in that day that brought greatness. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. In our kingdom, greatness is not by the amount of people that serve us, but by the amount of people we serve. And friends, I want you to understand that Jesus does not condemn them for the desire of greatness, but he does tell them that greatness in our kingdom is achieved in a different way. To become great, we must become servants of all. Now, there are some principles that lead to greatness. If God is great, and he's put seeds of greatness inside of us, are there components and principles that the word talks about 
that can help us. And John anchored us to the word, Pastor John, because as he anchored us to the word, he talked about the authority of God's word. So I'm going to give you some fill-ins, and then there'll be a scripture to undergird that fill-in and to support it so that we can begin to move towards greatness. What does it take to achieve greatness? First of all, excellence. And excellence means to excel beyond the normal, the average, and the ordinary. Do you know that when you and I are average, that's the bottom of the top and the top of the bottom? Average. And friends, excellence means to just simply excel beyond the normal, the uh, average, and the ordinary. One of the challenges when you and I only are satisfied with C's that we never push for a B or for an A in grades. Sometimes when we're satisfied with being average, we never push to become good and great. There are a lot of average athletes out there. Good ones sometimes go on to the next level of junior college and college. But think about all the men that play in college athletes, but never go on to the pros. It's a very small percentage. And friends, it means to push and excel beyond normal and average and ordinary I like Ecclesiastes because here we have an old man's wisdom reminiscing over his life. And in Ecclesiastes, New Living Translation says, whatever you do, do well. And when you go to the grave, there will be no work or planning or knowledge or wisdom. So whatever you and I have to do, we ought to do it with our might. We ought to do it well. We ought to do it well. Listen, don't do anything in a haphazard, an average, a normal way. Be extraordinary. And friends, I, I believe that men ought to learn how to do everything with a little bit of a flair. Some of you dress with a little bit of a flair. Some of you drive with a little bit of a flair. <laughs> and friends, I believe that you and I ought to always excel beyond the normal. One of the ways that we have quality improvement and improving our servant in our church, we always have these seminars at our church called How Can We Improve Our Serve, Improving Our Serve. And what we usually do is at the end of every event, we sit down and we do a SWOT analysis, S-W-O-T. Many of you use those in your business. We look at the strengths, the weaknesses, the opportunities, and the threats of that event because we want to do better. Sometimes the strengths are what we did well, uh, what we uh, planned on doing, and what actually happened. The weaknesses are things that we thought should have happened but needs uh, attention and improvement. Opportunities are always now, if we do this event again, or if we have opportunity to go down this journey again, what are some of the opportunities that we have to expand and enlarge and to serve the clients and the people that came in better? And then what are the threats? Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats are a good way to kind of do short-term analogies on every project that we do as a kingdom. And when you and I are kingdom people, we bring Christ into the activity that we have, even when we work. We work heartily as unto the Lord. I remember I've worked for people before that were kind of obnoxious, some of them rude, some of them vulgar. And sometimes they were rude and vulgar and obnoxious with me as an employee. And so fellow employees would come and say, Scales, you don't have to take that. How could you stand up and take that? And I said, well, I took that because I don't work for him. Now, here was a manager or supervisor or somebody that was over me that they were talking about. And I said, I don't work for him. I work heartily as unto the Lord. I said, on this job, I work for Jesus. And when I look at that manager, that supervisor, that person, they're in authority, so I see Jesus. So I work for that person just like I would work for Jesus. And inevitably, after a while, the Jesus in me began to influence the Jesus in that manager, supervisor, 
and or person that was over my life. I begin to see them change. And sometimes I even see, saw God move them out. Because if you work hardly as unto the Lord and stay under covering, under authority, as we just thought, then you and I can excel. But we have to every now and then stop and say, what were the strengths and weaknesses, the opportunity and the threats that come in? I'm telling you, men, just don't be average. When you go home from this meeting and you give your wife a kiss, don't give her no average kiss. Go back home and lay one order. And when she said, what was that all about? You say, ask Apostle Scales tomorrow, okay? (laughs) Don't do anything average. Next of all, how do we excel and how do we move into greatness? I believe that problem solving uh, means finding solutions uh, to what matters most. Proverbs 3, 27, about problem solving says, do not withhold good to those who deserve it when it's within your power to help them problem solving. Uh, I was doing a case study last year with our church on, um, on rules of engagement, just talking about the per- current political climate, the current world climate, and what are our rules of engagement. And I used for my case study, Daniel, Daniel. And one of the things that came out of me, Daniel is a child of uh, 16, uh, 14 to 16 years old that goes into Babylonian captivity. He's taken out of his native country and he goes to a culture that has different values, different core values, different belief system. And yet Daniel is able to not only sustain, but survive in that culture. My question was, what was one of Daniel's greatest assets? First of all, we cannot deny his prayer life. He had strong prayer life. Second of all, he refused the king's diet. He didn't eat what everybody else ate, either in the spiritual realm or in the natural realm. He refused the king's wine, so he didn't get intoxicated with the systems and with the uh, things of that. But Daniel became a problem solver in the country that he was in. He solved the king's problem in chapter three about the dream that he had. He solved uh, interpretive problems uh, that were going on in the kingdom. Daniel was habitually, uh, he was, it was his habit to be a problem solver. And friends, problem solving can cause you and I to move into greatness, even in a company. If you and I will get problems, uh, solutions, then that'll happen. I remember when I first started working for UPS uh, back in the early 70s. Man, I remember uh, the company had just come off a, a national teamster strike. And the packages were backed up, and so they were doing a lot of hiring to get caught up with packages. And I was on campus, read an ad that uh, United Parcel Services hired, went out there filling my application. They, they wanted to hire me that night, but I borrowed my mother's car between the time that she got off one job. She's taking a nap, going, getting ready, go back to the other job. She said, I need my car back here. So I could not hire that night, but I, I told the man, I could be back tomorrow night. So he hired me. They brought me in. They gave me a little sheet. And they said, listen, you're going to be loading these two trucks. On the front side of this sheet, those packages go on this side. Just names of cities. On the second side of this sheet, those packages go on this side. It was all manual labor. And that was my orientation. Here's your sheet. These packages go here. Those packages go there. I started being productive. I was, after a couple of nights, I could keep up both trucks. They said, could you help on the Washington, D.C. Uh, truck over there? It's flower season. And they had all kind of uh, flowers coming through there. So I started keeping that one up. And after uh, my 30 days uh, there, they give you a, uh, you know, did you make your production? I had made my production. I had not been late. I've been there every day. They said, you're hired. And so they gave me my debriefing, my 30-day probationary debriefing. Then they asked me a question. They said, uh, they said, now we've told you what your production is. 
what can we as a company do for you? I said, that's a good question. I said, because I got hired the first night I put in the application. I got a sheet that told me package is going this truck, package is going that truck. I said, nobody ever told me any history of this company. I said, nobody ever told me the scope of this company. I said, nobody ever told me why one missort on this one truck will impact the whole system. I said, I think y'all need an orientation program. My supervisor went to writing. After he got finished writing, about two months later, he came in scared. Scales, I need to see you in my office before we start to sort. I went into his office. He came in and he got out his checkbook and wrote me a check. And that check was going to be more money than I was going to take home in my paycheck that week. It's a personal check. I said, what's this for? He said, you know that ideal you gave me on orientation? And I said, yeah. He said, I went in home and drew up an orientation program. They gave the history of the company, uh, gave each individual job in its respective thing. He said, I had one of my cousins who, who does graphic artists. He said, formalize that thing, presented it to management. It went upscale. They're going to make it a company-wide orientation program. He said, I got a big bonus as a manager, and here's your cut. Look at the man next to you and say, don't be a problem. Tell him, be a problem solver. Wonder if we had this many men in every congregation that determined, I'm not going to be a problem. I'm going to be a problem solver. And friends, some of the principles that lead to greatness is problem solving. I was also discovered diligence. Point number three, diligence is a speedy action to an assignment, to an assigned task. Now, a lot of people are fast to do a lot of things that they're not assigned to, but diligence is a speedy action to an assigned task. Listen, Proverbs, New uh, King James Version this time, 13.4 says, the soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing. Your desire is great, but it won't get you nothing if you don't work for it. It says, but the soul of the diligence shall be made rich. You see, friends, you and I, we can sit around and, and complain about our assignment or we can go ahead and do our assignment. It's interesting when you read the book of Galatians, there are two men that, that we meet there that are having some contention about how do we treat these Gentile Christians that are going into, coming into church. And Paul resolves it like this. He said, it seemed good to the Holy Ghost. He said that God gave the Peter the circumcision. And to me, the uncircumcision. Now, Paul understood that his call primarily was to the Gentiles, but he also had a passion for his brothers, the Jews. His heart's desire for Israel is that they would be saved. But friends, Paul understood that I have to be diligent in the thing that I've been assigned to. And I found out that diligence and faithfulness and being reliable and friends being ready and speedy to the assigned tasks that we've been given and not trespassing in other people's business. Sometimes we commit the sin of trespass. And a trespass is when you step into somebody else's purpose. At the church, many times we have all kind of assigned tasks. And if you and I are a parking lot attendant, do it with diligence. And stop messing with the people in the choir. If you're in the choir, do it with diligence. And then stop messing with the ushers. 
Stop committing the sin of trespass. You know, in rural areas in Ohio, there are no trespassing signs on certain properties. These are people that like to live off the grid. And when you go on their property, they, they will let you know you're on the wrong property. Sometimes they'll sick their dogs on you. Sometimes they'll come out with firearms. And friends, I'll tell you what, trespassing is an offense. Private property, keep out. But the sin of trespass is a sin of infringement. When you and I step into somebody else's business, when you and I have been assigned a task by God or by management or by supervisors or by those in authority on us, do that job. Do it with diligence. Do it with all your might. And what I've discovered, that diligence will get the attention of your superiors. Be diligent in that because the heart of the diligent will bear rule. Now, I found out that this one, number four, will help us move into greatness. It's called favor. Favor is a friendly regard for a supervisor, from a supervisor, and a gracious kindness and or consideration from an authority. Favor. Now, favor can help you with reference, can help you with connection, can help you with introductions, favor. And favor occurs when, uh, when instruction has been followed and uh, accurately and quickly. I have found out that we can receive favor from God, amen, and that's what Jesus grew in. Wisdom and his stature and in favor of God, amen. Listen to Proverbs twenty two twenty nine. It says, do you see a man truly competent workers? Do you see any truly competent workers, they will serve kings rather than working for ordinary people. Now listen, competence is important. Competence, that it means that you know how to do something well and you have the necessary skills to do something well and you carry it out. That's competence. Now listen, the church can pray you through persecution, but the church cannot pray you through incompetence. You and I need to gather the necessary skills to do something, and doing that, it garners favor. And favor means that our superiors will look at us, and because we are now, favor occurs when instruction has been followed accurately and quickly. Favor. And competence means that you have the necessary skills to do that, and it garners favor. Favor opens up the door to reference. A lot of places I've gone in the world to preach has been because of just a reference. Somebody mentioned my name when they were at a convention in another country and said, call this man, he'll do you good on your journey. And that opened up a door. And then I have to guard that reference so that I make sure that that person gets what they thought was going to be delivered. So you and I, we move towards greatness with excellence, problem solving, diligence, favor. And the final one that I want to give you here is also cooperation. Get in along with others. I want you to lean on your neighbor and pull a rod in the king and say, can we all just get along? Go ahead and tell them. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead and tell them. Yeah, yeah. Cooperation. Most of our visions and dreams are too large to try to do ourselves. You and I are going to have to learn how to get along with somebody at some time. The reason that God gives you a wife is to start off that process. Then he gives you kids to help enhance that process. Then he puts you in a community where sometimes they're neighbors to enforce that project. Then he puts you in the church with the guy on your right and on your left to show you just how to get along. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 14 says this. Listen, the words 
Uh, it says, work hard at living in peace with everyone. Now, I'm still praying about that. I'm saying, Lord, show me how to do that. Because it says, work at living at peace with everyone. New Living Translation. And work at living a holy life for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Work hard at living at peace with everyone. It's, it's easy to be quarrelsome with everyone. You know what's tough to do? Live at peace with everyone. That's a tough one. So just work at it. Work at it. Work at it. Work at it. Be a man of peace. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 23, New Living Translation says again, again I say unto you, uh, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone. I'm praying and asking the Lord to help me out to do that. Must be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. You know that the Lord sometimes permits difficult people in your life to stretch you in your growth. Because we have stretched as far as we go. We just think we love everybody. And then God sends a difficult person in our life. And then God lets us stretch. And then we think, oh, I can't love anymore. And then he sends somebody that we say, oh, God, I just can't stand them. And then all of a sudden he says, stretch. Because I love everybody. And if you're going to be godly, I can show you how to do that. And so sometimes God just sends these people. And sometimes they just show up in your life. And it becomes an opportunity to learn how to deal with difficult people. Two of the hot selling books in our bookstore at our church is how to deal with high maintenance relationships. And then how to deal with red flag relationships. Red flag relationships are when you meet somebody, a red flag goes up and you say, oh, I can see this. I had a lady join my church one time, Pastor John. And when she came out of the uh, out of the personal workers room, she, they said she wanted to meet you. And she came up to me and she said, I want you to know I am Holy Ghost filled, fire baptized, filled with the spirit, talk in tongues. She said, I read my Bible every day. And then she looked at me and said, and I'm a pastor's headache. And I said, oh, we don't need that anointing in our church, okay? Uh, you need to take that grace down to the church down the street. But she never went away. She just kind of laughed and said, you funny. She didn't know I was serious. And she tried everything to just disturb me and get on my nerve. If I say sit on, if I say everybody sit in the center section, everybody in the center section, and then her. And after a while, I, God just said, the reason that you're so angry with yours, you never have told me, you never have asked me to show you how to love her. I didn't want to pray that prayer. <laughs> I'm growing with y'all. <laughs> I have to work hard at being at peace. So I said, okay, Lord, show me how to love her. And I showed, and, I, and, and the Lord showed me in a dream. Her husband had died, left her. She felt abandoned. Her father had been abusive, so she also felt abused. She really had a root cause. She didn't trust men. And I was a male leader in a church. She determined that, therefore, she was going to be insulated and isolated from other people. She also determined that when men came in her life and tried to tell her what to do, that, that it was going to be on. I mean, she would constantly tell men, you don't tell me what to do. 
You better ask me. She wanted the ushers to ask her, do you want to sit here? Rather than come on down here, here's your seat. So we learn how a soft answer could turn away wrath. We started telling her, and this was my this was my statement to her. I said, I'm not asking you to do anything unscriptural, unbiblical, illegal, and moral and unethical. I said, I'm just asking you to sit over here. Obey. (laughs) And after a while, she just started sitting in the right place. And I would call her in sometime when somebody had had an out with her, and I'd bring them in. I said, now listen, did they ask you to do anything unscriptural, unbiblical, unethical, illegal, or immoral? No, pastor. And I said, then why don't we just cooperate? And friends, sometimes God permits people to come into our lives that help us to stretch in our love. Look at your neighbor and say, I was wondering why you were in my life. Go ahead and touch the man next to you. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, tell him. Go ahead, go ahead. Uh-huh, tell him. I was wondering how you got in my life. Yeah, Paul says don't get into endless quarrels with folks. Uh, Hebrews, the writer there says, uh, work at living at peace with everyone. I found that cooperation happened. So, so these little components are some principles I've learned over life, uh, over a life of, uh, over life that have worked for me. And then I'm going to check in with others and I've asked them what leads to greatness. Some of these principles have been repetitious in the conversation of excellence, problem solving, diligence, favor from God and man and cooperation. Now listen, survival involves survival involves solving your own problems. Promotion involves solving the problems of others. But greatness happens through consistency, excellence, problem solving over time. You and I can be in a survival mode where we're just trying to solve our own problems. But I told you leaders have to look beyond the context, beyond their current context. Promotion will happen when you and I solve other people's problems. And great leaders have uncommon passion. They want to see problems solved, not just find problems. There are problem finders and there are problem solvers. Now, what is passion? Passion is a burning desire. Now, a lot of men tell me, well, I'm not in touch with my passion like that until I see them watch the New England Patriots. And I found out that men are as passionate as any other human beings. You just got to push the right button. And nothing really happens without passion. Nothing really happens without passion. Passion is a burning desire to change or to serve or to achieve a goal. Passion, it's the internal fires. One author that I read, John Maxwell, said passion is really the juice of life. It's the gasoline that you pour on life to get life going. Passion, nothing really happens without passion. And I find out that when you and I move out of survival mode, into promotion mode, there's a passion that comes to help solve problems that are put before us. And we can do all things through Christ who strengthened us and everything that happens in our kingdom happens with passion. See, I like to talk about passion for a moment because passionate people are who we read about in the Bible. Isaiah was passionate in Isaiah chapter 50 and verse number seven. He says, because the sovereign Lord helped me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a stone and determined to do this will. It says, I know that I will not be put to shame. 
Here there's a termination that comes with passion. And it says, I will not be denied. I will do his will. You see, Paul had passion. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 13, Paul put it like this. He says, brother and I do not count myself to have apprehended. But notice this statement. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to those things that are ahead. I press towards the prize or towards a goal for the prize of the of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Paul had a passion to achieve that for which he had been operating. Paul said, I know my past is behind me. I'm standing in my now, but I'm reaching for my future with passion. Paul was passionate. Even Jesus was passionate uh, because in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number two, it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame and he sat down at the right hand of, 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 of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradictions of sinners against himself, lest you be weary and faint in your minds. Jesus had to endure the contradictions of men. And yet because of the passion, he saw all of us down the road. He was able to face the, his passion that we call the cross, death, burial, resurrection, and then ascension. Joshua was passionate. As we heard in our previous session, in Joshua's passion, he's going into a land. The people are dragging their feet. They've dragged their feet for 40 years. Now God is bringing them in. And God tells him, only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to the law of Moses, my servant, which I command you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. Passion. Isaiah had that passion to prophesy. Listen, Paul had that passion to uh, spread the church. Jesus had that passion to endure the cross. Joshua had that passion to take them into the land. If all these men needed passion to accomplish their assignment, you and I will need passion to accomplish the assignment that God gives us. Don't tell me that you want something and you don't pursue it because the proof of desire is pursuit. The psalmist said, one thing I desire of thee, O Lord, and that will I seek after. If you're not seeking after and going after it, then it's not a desire because men don't go after what they need. They go after what they want. And if you tell me something's a passion, I expect there to be a fire and move towards it. And friends, you and I need to walk towards it, run towards it, fall towards it. But you and I need to move towards that thing that God has called us to do. You see, I found out that you and I, as we move with passion in our life, we maintain passion by about two things that I've discovered. First of all, habitually scheduling time in the secret place. I found out that when I spend time with the vision and dream and goal that God has given unto me, habitually spending time in the secret place, that God reignites my passion. Psalm number 91, verse number one, it says, He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High, he shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I found out I never come out of the secret place, my time of prayer, my time of devotion, without finding myself reignited for the passion that God has called me to. Listen, resisting wrong relationships will also enhance your passion because wrong relationships can slow down and burn out your passion. Negative talk in your ear on a regular basis can diminish your passion. First Corinthians 15, 33, it says, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. 
Listen, evil company can weaken your focus and it can become a distraction. And when those voices are constantly in our ear telling us what we cannot do, what we should not do, everybody knows somebody that's going to have tried to do what you're going to propose to do that lost their shirt trying to do it. I had a lady and now she was going to write a book and somebody told her, have you ever written a book before? She said, no, but God told me to write down this devotional book. She was going to write down a two, uh, 52 lessons of devotions that somebody could study the word of God every week for a year. She said, I'm surprised at the amount of negative people that I heard. She said, now I ain't at work. But also somebody said, are you a journalist? She said, no. Are you English major? No. Are you a writer? No. She said, but God told me to do it. Then she said, somebody said, well, I know somebody that lost their shirt trying to uh, write a book. I said, how can you have to be pretty dumb to do that? And then they said, I know somebody that lost their job and lost their house. And I said, well, they just got out of balance. And she said she heard every kind of negative things. And the Sunday that she stood up in our church and I said, I'd like to devote, I would like to present to you a new devotional that's been written by one of our members. It was picked up by a, a, a publishing company and it's going to be distributed. And there's going to be a book signing at the end of the day in the church. The church stood up and cheered her. She stood up there and cried. She says, you don't know the warfare I had to go through, but I had to maintain passion. I had to cut myself off as a people to get this done because evil companions will corrupt good manners. They will cause us to lose our focus and become distractions. I'm telling you, there's sometimes you got to cut some things off. And friends, when you do it, you'll be the better for it. There's sometimes you got to cut it off. You got to cut your losses and say, oh, no, I got to, got to stop this. Because I'm not called to fight with God's people. I'm called to achieve the goal and to move this thing forward. And once it starts moving forward, everybody wants to come in. She told me as a surprise when she sent a tithe in from the bookstore, uh, from, from her book signing to our church, sent a little note to me. She didn't send me the tithe, but she sent the church a tithe, but she sent me a note. Praise the Lord. Okay. And she said this. She said it was surprising that after I got the thing done, that people that used to discourage me, came to the table and said, could I get a selfie with you? <laughs> See, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Them folks that talked about you yesterday, once you go with passion and achieve the thing that God told you to do, they'll want to come up with their phone and go, yeah, I know, John. <laughs> I know, Pastor Lafayette. They want to post you up on their Facebook page. All the time, they know. I told him he couldn't do it. And friends, I want you to know that your passion will help you to push past all of that. Most of the time, God gives us dreams and visions before we have all the knowledge. I found out God is sometimes very stingy with details. But if you'll begin to move with passion towards what he tells you to move towards, the details will begin to come. He has people out there. And so spend time in the secret place. That will help you to maintain your passion. Resist wrong relationships. When you find out it's wrong, there's time. Even Joshua moving me into the land had to move out of the wilderness into the land. He had to change in a place where he had been before. Let me close with this today and our final point here because, listen, the greatest enemies to, the, uh, to your gift of passion inside of you are, first of all, fatigue. Sometime when you and I are moving with passion towards our greatness, you and I can get tired. I'm telling you what, fatigue and being tired and being weary and being fatigued can happen. And being tired can be just physical uh, exhaustion. 
Being weary sometimes can be mental and emotional exhaustion. Plain old uh, uh, exhaustion just comes because many times we neglect the Sabbath principle. And when you and I neglect the Sabbath principle, you and I can be tired. America has taken on the philosophy of Pharaoh, which talks about 24 7. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Do you know when Egypt, when Israel was in, was in Pharaoh's uh, domain, Pharaoh made them work seven days a week, about 18 hours a day. And the Pharaoh's narrative is still alive and well in the world, world we are today. When God brought them out of Egypt, he said, listen, I created everything in six days and I'm going to give y'all six days to do all of your work. But the fourth commandment, which is the longest of all the commandments, says, I followed it and I sanctified it and I set it aside. I believe that the Sabbath principle ought to be obeyed in men's lives. When I say the Sabbath principle, I think everyone ought to deserve a break. Go ahead and look at the man next to you and say, you deserve a break today. Okay, yeah, everyone, the Sabbath principle. So I don't believe in 24-7 living. I believe in 24-6 living. A 24-6 lifestyle says everybody ought to have a day where you can take off. God created the whole world in six days and he took a day off and he didn't need a day off because he never runs out of energy, power, or presence. Now he created everything. What are you so busy doing? It takes a lot of faith to work six days and believe that God can meet your need and take one day to worship him, meditate on what he said, reflect on what he said, and rest this terrestrial body. And fatigue will begin to diminish your, your, your passion. And so I'm a proponent of 24-6 lifestyle. I had some people in our city that I threw out that assignment. Some lady made some t-shirts and making a whole lot of money. And friends, 24-6 lifestyle. It's not patented, so go ahead and do it if you want to. I know somebody writing that down right now is going to make a little money right there. 24-6 <laughs> lifestyle. And what that says is I'm going to work six days a week. I'm going to believe by faith that I can take a day and God will make the difference. Just by being a principle, just the principle, not law, just principle. Let's go ahead and take a day. I believe also you ought to take an hour every day, take an hour every day. You got 24 hours every day. Take an hour every day to sit in silence and reflect on what God is telling you. You have 24 hours of them dudes every day. Take one hour to sit in silence. And crystallize what it is that God's telling you. Thirdly, I believe that when you go to sleep, your phone ought to go to sleep. Okay, thank you for your overwhelming amens. Sleeping with your phone on your nightstand, having that thing tweeting and bug and, and chiming and, and, and vibrating and buzzing all night long, it's going to disturb your sleep. I mean, I follow President Trump on uh, Twitter. I, pro- I follow President Obama in the last administration. And one morning, my, my phone was on my nightstand, and it started buzzing. My wife said, who is that? I picked it up. It's a president. He was tweeting me, 3 o'clock in the morning. And she said, I thought when you went to sleep, your phone went to sleep. I said, I was so tired, I put it on my nightstand. Excuse me. I went out over there and put it on the holster, put it on the charger. That's out of my bedroom. Some, since y'all are so resistant, some of y'all mean mugging me now. Look at the man next to you. <laughs> Look at the man next to you and say, put your phone to sleep when you go to sleep. Okay, because some of y'all give me the mean mug, man. Some of y'all give me the mean mug. Okay. (laughs) 
All right, now, now watch it, because you and I need to get rid of fatigue. Fatigue will make us, when you're tired, you make bad decisions. Dr. Cole taught us don't ever make a, 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 an important decision when you're tired and when you're angry. Take some time. Even God, when Adam sinned in the garden that we read about in our last session, God waited till man cooled down. And he came to him in the garden in the cool of the day. There was a cooling down period. And then God says, now you're ready for a God encounter. Friends, don't react. Press pause before you press send. Because <laughs> sometimes we get angry. Can't those fingers go, brother? And then we get ready to press pause. <laughs> Before you press sin. And friends, fatigue can cause us to lose passion. Listen, closing this out here, busyness can cause you to lose passion. And busyness just is unfocused activity, and it could also be unpurposeful actions, busyness. Fill this one in, it's your last fill-in. This last fill-in is overscheduling. Look at the man next to you and tell him you have time to do everything God told you to do. Tell him. God told you to do. Yeah, tell him again. Yeah, so if you're talking about, I don't have time to do everything, then you need to figure out what it is that you're doing that God didn't tell you to do because you have time to do everything God told you to do. Over scheduling is accepting opportunities rather than assignments God has told you. Accepting opportunities versus assignments God did not tell you. I remember one time years ago when I was a young preacher wanting to preach. A man came up to me at the end of a convention that I preached at and he said, will you come to my church and preach? And I said, yes. Because I didn't have nothing on my calendar, Pastor Ray. And I said, yes, so quick. And I came home and all the way studying for what I was going to preach at that man's church that Sunday. It would just not come together. I pulled up in his parking lot and I had three sermons on my car seat. John, I didn't know what I was going to preach. And I'm sitting there saying, God, this never happens to me. I always know as a focus what I'm going to minister. He said, that's because this is not your assignment. He said, you didn't pray and ask me where you're supposed to come and preach here. And I said, Lord, I sure did. And I just said, yes, because I was a young preacher just wanting to preach. And I said, well, Lord, I'll go in there and tell the man that I'm out of the will of God. Can he find somebody else? And he said, no. He said, they have prepared a program. They're expecting you to be here. And then the Lord told me this. I'm going to cover you this time, but don't ever do that again. Everybody say grace. Grace is God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. Grace is his activity in our life. I went in there and preached. I picked up one sermon that I really sense the Holy Ghost rested on. Preached that sermon. The place was tremendously blessed. They even took up a love offering for me. I'm walking out and the pastor said, where are you going so fast, preacher? I got your envelope here. I said, keep it. I said, I got to get out of here. Because I knew God had covered me. And friends... You and I can get overscheduled by just saying yes to things that God has not told us to do, accepting opportunities versus assignments. And friends, it can help reduce our passion that can slow down our greatness. Putting God last on your daily schedule 
can also be a great enemy, enemy to your and I uh, passion inside of us. The enemies of passion are fatigue, busyness, overscheduling, and putting God last on the daily schedule. You got that? Now, great leaders are passionate with a burning desire. I quoted it, and now I read it. Psalm 27, verse number four, one thing I desire of you, O Lord, and that will I seek after I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The proof of desire is pursuit. And listen, let's build great, a great house of the Lord. This year, I believe that God is going to emphasize his kingdom and his church, his kingdom and his church. He's going to emphasize communal living. We've had a lot of time talking about our personal relationship with the Lord, but there's also a communal house of the Lord and a communal house of the Lord is a community of faith, the people of God. You see, people come because they are invited to the house of the Lord, but people stay because they feel love. Tom Rainier, the great Southern Baptist uh, statistician is George Barna on this side. George Barna kind of surveys everybody out there to get his statistics about what they think about the church. Tom Rainier surveys people that have actually made the journey from the world to the church. And he talks to those people, people that are recent converts from the world to the church. And when he asked the question, why did you come and why did you stay? 80% of the people that come to the church over the bridge from the world to the church come because they're invited. One of the cheapest things that you and I can do to advertise a church is invite people to come to church. Why do people stay? Because they feel love. They come because they're invited. They stay because they feel love. My question to you as we move into greatness and want to build a great house of the Lord, no matter what church you came from today, what can you do to invite people to your church this year? What can you do? And then what can you do to make them feel loved at your church? Let me give you some examples before we go to table talk for a few minutes. Here's some examples. Whenever I meet somebody in Columbus, Ohio, I always have three questions I ask them. First question I ask them is, first of all, what's your name? Because people's names sound sweet even when they saying it themselves. They love to hear their name. What's your name? Next of all, I ask them, what do you do? Whether it's a male or a female, what do you do? What's your vocation? What do you do? Are you a student? Are you, are you a worker? Are you a business owner? Are you an entrepreneur? What do you do? My third question is always, where do you worship? Where do you worship? What's your name? What do you do? Where do you worship? If they don't have an identifiable place of worship, or if they have a hesitancy in telling me where they worship, then I figure that they are open game. They're a target. They are my assignment. And my statement to them, if they don't have an identifiable place of worship, I say, come to Rama Christian Center on Agler Road. And then I make this statement. We will do you good on your journey. Come to Rama Christian Center on Agler Road. I said, we will do you good on your journey. I want you to try that at your table right now with the men next to you. Just tell him. And tell him, come to and then say Faith Christian Center or wherever you're located. And then say, we'll do you good on your journey. If you're part of Living Word, do that with him. Everybody, no matter where you are, right now, go. Come to Faith Christian Center. We'll do you good on your journey. <laughs>
from wherever you're from go ahead work it out all right good now here's what I want you to do I want you to take three minutes on those two questions three minutes on the two questions so I'm gonna give you six minutes that's it three minutes two questions three minutes each first of all I want you to tell folk at your table what are you going to do not what the church is going to do What are you going to do to invite people to your church this year? And then what are you going to do to help them feel love once they come? Okay, you got six minutes. Go. Okay, you should be on to your second question now if you haven't gotten there yet. Go ahead. What can you do to invite people? What can you do to make them feel love once they arrive? Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that we desire to move from average to good and from good to great. And Father, we know that excellence, problem solving, diligence, favor from you and from man, cooperation will help us to move in that direction. Father, passion is critical to greatness because nothing really happens in the earth without a burning God-given desire. The psalmist said, one thing I desire of you, O Lord, and that will I seek after. Let our proof of passion be proved by action. Isaiah had a passion. Paul had a passion. Jesus had a passion, Father. David had a passion for your house. Father, generate and ignite that same kind of passion inside of us, even as Joshua had, and that once we get it, we don't lose track and fall to the right or to the left. Let us burn with a passion for you. I pray also that the men might just habitually visit the secret place to renew passion. Father, that you'll show us how to discern and resist wrong relationships. Finally, Father, help us to cast off fatigue and take some time to breathe because we are human beings, not machines. Father, we need to stop, unplug, disconnect, and cease. Father, we pray that we'll not get involved in busyness and overscheduling. But God, will put you first on our schedule. We'll seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness. And then all these other things will be added unto us. Father, this year, help us all in the churches, whether in Pawtucket or whether in Seekonk or anywhere in this uh, Rhode Island and Massachusetts areas, help us to build a strong house of the Lord because people want to encounter you and what better place to encounter you than in your house. One thing I desire of thee, O Lord, and that will I seek after. I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Help people to have God encounters once they get there. And then, Father, help us to be people that are inviting people to come to worship and then loving them once they come. And then we can move from good to great. Father, let us serve people with gladness. Those who desire to be first, let them become the servant of all. And in serving, we become great. And for this, we give you thanksgiving. We thank you for these men. Thank you for them achieving not only great things in your house, 
but great things in their businesses, great things in their entrepreneurship, great things in their families. Because we came from greatness because you are great. Help us to do great things in Jesus' name. All of God's men said, Amen. Amen.